special guest to the podcast, Spencer Paulison, is here in the room. Spencer just completed Dirty Kanza, and Spencer, you, you had some cool gear out there. Talk to me about the gear you had out there for 200 miles of racing across Kansas. That's right, that's right, Fred. I guess it's like alumni weekend here or something, but I think the gear I'm going to point out right now is Victoria's Terreno Dry Gravel Tires. These tires were really impressive because I saw so many people with flats out there on the sharp flint gravel roads around Emporia, Kansas, and I actually didn't have any punctures in this 200-mile gravel race. I was amazed. These tires held up great, and uh, really thankful that Victoria supplied us with this product for the for the Dirty Kanza. What kind of uh, PSI were you running out there, Spencer? Let's have some tire talk. Yes, I was around about 27 in the front and about 30 in the back, so pretty low. I mean, we're talking close to the types of pressures you'd run in a mountain bike sometimes, but it makes a big difference on such a rough course that's so long. Well, thanks to Victoria for sponsoring us on our gravel adventures. You can read all about Spencer's effort at Dirty Kanza on VeloNews.com with some great insight about the gear he used, his day, and how he was able to survive and thrive. Uh, you had a great time. You had a great finishing time, Spencer. Congrats to you. Thanks, Fred. All right, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Vela News podcast. It is alumni weekend here at the <laughs> Vela News podcast. Fred Dreyer in the bowels of the Vela News World headquarters. And I am so, so, so happy to be joined by Spencer Paulison, former news director, now just casual man about in, in the world, no longer a Vela News employee. You are a, a citizen now. Yep. Uh, but I'm civilian. so Civilian. Civilian. You yeah. are a civilian. I'm so happy to have you back here because, nice. Spencer, we're going we're gonna to talk all about your Dirty Kanza effort on today's podcast. We're going to talk with Spencer. We're going to hear from the winner, Colin Strickland, who was on this podcast last week. You called it. Uh, yeah, listeners, if you have a long-distance endurance challenge coming up, please just let me know. I'll get you on the uh, Villainous podcast beforehand. You're a kingmaker. You're a kingmaker. <laughs> yeah. It's guaranteed to make you successful. Uh, that's maybe not entirely <laughs> the case. Uh, and then the second half of the show, we're going to talk some Jared Italia with Andrew Hood, who is back from his rainy, wet, crash-filled odyssey across Italy. But first, let's, let's waste no time. Spencer... How are you feeling after 200 rough miles across Kansas? Well, we're a couple days removed from the race, Fred. I'd say overall I'm feeling fairly good. I, I, I'm starting to catch up on my sleep. It's uh, like yesterday I wanted to sleep in until like noon practically, but I couldn't. I do have a day job now. Uh, it, uh, it definitely takes a lot out of you. It's such an early wake up to do the race at 4 a.m., uh, physically, I actually am not super duper sore right now. I, I had a very sore lower back on Sunday and uh, a few other aches and pains. But truthfully, I'm, I feel relatively good considering the the, the length of, of time I was on the bike and, and the level of effort it required. Tell us the story of your race. Tell yeah. us tell us the Spencer day. Yep. Okay. So it was uh, it, it was a day that I had been honestly kind of fearful of for for many weeks leading up to it. I've I've really been worried about how this race would go. I've never ridden this distance before. Um, I honestly didn't feel 100% in terms of my training. And um, also, uh, I've got a a wrist that's been sore for about a month now because I took up a kind of bad habit uh, this... uh, this winter and spring, and I got myself a dirt bike, so I've been riding the motos a little. Oh, no. Crashed on that, and my wrist still a little sore going into this race. Got some PT, you know. I wrapped it with tape, and I just kind of was hoping and praying as I uh, lined up for the start of the ride at uh, at uh, 6 a.m. there in Emporia. And man, it's just amazing how many people turn out downtown to watch people roll out. I mean, a lot of it's friends and families. I think there's some locals too that come for the spectacle, and it's uh, it's this amazing vibe there in Emporia. This family feeling of uh, people coming together, thousands of people from around the country, around the world, and coming for this huge, huge gravel event that's just legendary at this point. And so once it started, I mean, I kind of knew this would be the case. It's sort of once you get going, you're just you're riding your bike. And personally, I've done enough, you know, bike races, whether they're mountain bike, gravel, road, whatever, that you kind of you hit the muscle memory and you and you start to feel comfortable and, and feel a little more confident and uh 
it was uh it was still very very fast start to the race the first 50 or so miles are pretty hectic i mean i would say i dodged about four crashes and i mean like really dodged them like wow. hopping over someone's rear wheel type dodging situation where i almost went down myself uh unfortunately one of my friends yuri hoswald who won the 2015 edition dirty kanza crashed early on right in front of me he got washed out by a guy on a corner and uh he came up holding his wrist i was a little worried about him. unfortunately he was able to carry on and finish he got his uh he got his goblet as a 1000 mile club he finished uh finished five of these crazy races um so yeah that first part of it was uh, very racy and um i had to really hold myself back i gotta say i like i put a sticker on my on a handlebar it just said chill out that was my message to myself for that first part of the race where i had to just chill out i couldn't get over eager and um and it was easy to get tempted into doing that because it was a, such a stacked field and a lot of the very good riders actually flatted early on. And um, as I mentioned in the sponsor read in the intro, I did not flat, thankfully. I was very fortunate. Um, and so some of these fast riders were coming blazing by you in those early parts and it's easy to get tempted into being like, oh, I'll just hop on their wheel and ride up to the next group or something. And that's something you can normally do in a road race or maybe a marathon mountain bike race or some other race where it's like, uh, you know, the, the endurance aspect of it isn't as, as significant, but I just knew in my heart that I couldn't burn those matches. And at one point I was in this group with, um, Kiel Reinen on the Trek Segafredo team and he had flatted and I was riding with him and I was like stoked to hang out with him. I, he's an old friend of mine. I got to talk to him a little, we're riding together, having a good time. And I was like, I realized this, I can't do this. This is too hard. And it even wasn't that hard. Honestly, it's like the type of effort where if you were doing it on the average group ride or even like a longer said 75 or 100 mile ride you'd be like yeah it's okay i'll burn these matches i'll make it through but no no you cannot do that when you've got 200 miles to ride and i just sat up and let the group go on one of those hills i knew i shouldn't and uh, i was glad i did because another group caught up to me with a few other people i knew i was able to ride with them a much more manageable pace and it's just amazing how many people you see that you know in this race or at least personally i do which is exciting and fun so it's a little bit of a reunion sort of um so that was like the first half of it, which is very like fast and racy and everything. This is, it's long winded, but let's face it. It's a long race. There's a lot to talk about. And, um, the, the biggest issue I had was we came into the, the first aid station and I couldn't find my feet. Oops. Yeah. There's a couple things that happened. Uh, the, I, I was expecting to find Kate, my wife, um, at the SRAM tent. Um, she works for SRAM and, Unfortunately, the, the SRAM tent was parked in a way that was kind of not totally visible coming uh -oh. into town, so I didn't quite see them. Um, and I think Kate actually hadn't even made it there by that point. It was it's it's hectic. It's so hectic at these feed zones. So I think she had some trouble parking. I'm not going to blame her at all. It's just total first timer thing for both of us. Neither of us knew how crazy it was going to be. Uh, it, you know, it's like the Leadville feed zones. If anyone's ever seen those, it's just insanity. There's so many people in this little town. You're trying to spot your person, and you're just so. I, I stopped eventually in the middle of this town, in the middle of Alma, Kansas. It's like middle of nowhere, just like south of I-70. And I saw Brad, our photographer, and I was like, "Well, Brad, I don't know where this ram tent is." And he's like, "Oh, it's way back by the, the by the school." And I was like, "Oh, come on, really?" And I was like, well, is Kate there? And he's like, no, she's not. And I was like, damn, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so it just so happened I stopped right by where our old friend Bobby Wintle had set oh, up. Oh, Bobby. Yes, yeah, so From Bobby Wintle. Run. Yeah, he's salt of the earth, one of my very favorite people in the gravel community, promoter of the Land Run 100 gravel race. He has a bike shop down in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, the district bicycle uh, shop. And so Bobby, being Bobby, this is just absolutely exactly how he is he's he just flew into action he took care of me filled up all my bottles gave me he gave me his, his sandwich he had for lunch he, he gave me everything i could possibly ask for lube my chain got my bike all set and this is like the next stretch is like 90 miles without anything apart from a water stop that's like at um at, it's not for another 60 miles or so so he totally saved me i would have been i would have been screwed if i hadn't gotten anything at that station at that aid stop so Carried on um, around that time. I caught up with Yuri again. He was he was having a rough one. He had he was carrying on though, and so we all rode together. Me and him and a few other people I knew. Um, lost my bottle at one point, so I was short a bottle. Um, well, I had two, but that was down to one because it popped off on a rough section. That was that section was amazing. It was so rough and just out in the middle of nowhere. These rolling hills, like unbelievably hilly for for kansas you'd never think but it's there's not, a, not an inch of flat, flat ground in that that area just kind of i don't even know how to describe where this area is it's like not near emporia i guess 
pretty far away. Pretty far, yeah. I don't know. So we were out there, and oh my gosh, I was just totally running low on fuel. I was, I was just bagging food off of people. Like people were hooking me up with whatever they had to spare. And uh, we finally got to the water station, filled up water. I will say, um, props to EF Education First. Um, They set up a huge water station. Um, for all the riders, uh, you know, wet bandanas, big water tanker, everything. I mean, it's really cool because yes, you send your riders to the event. They're part of it. That's, that's special. But to, to come in with like a staff of people to like actually give back to every participant that's out there racing is, is a really nice touch. And I thought, I thought they really did it right by, by engaging with the event like that and becoming more of a part of it than just simply you know, showing up with a few riders. So credit to them for that. What was the tough part for you? I mean, everyone you talk to at Dirty Kansas has a moment in the race where they're starting to crack, they're starting to hurt, maybe emotionally, you know, some of the bad feelings come in. What was that moment for you? Yeah, definitely for me, that moment was the last uh, probably 20 miles of the race. And I I had gotten revived by the second aid station, which is about 50 miles to go. Kate was there. I got all my stuff. She totally took care of me, got my ice pack, got all sorts of drinks, ate a bunch of Doritos. It was great. And I just felt like a million bucks and I was jamming out for the next 30 miles. Probably a little too much. I think I had got a little over a little overzealous. And then those last 20 miles, I was just on my hands and knees. And these hills are just relentless. They keep coming over and over and over. These hills, you go straight up and then straight down and then over and over and over. And you keep seeing people and then they start to catch you. And I was, I was really bonked to the point where I felt like I kind of wanted to fall asleep in the middle of this ride. And thankfully, um, I, I, a guy caught me with about 10 miles to go. This guy, Andy, um, I think Andy Kaplan is his full name. And he's a buddy of Mark Goosh, who works for Velo News and Pocket Outdoor Media. He's, um, he said, what does he, what does he do now? He's, yeah, a, he's our guy. Ad sales guy. He's, he's a guy. Anyways, he was like, oh, Velo News, I know Mark and blah, blah, blah. And he was, he was having the time of his life. He was riding great. He was chatty. He was asking me all these questions. And I was like, yeah, man. I, okay. Uh, yeah, I live in Boulder. And I, I just had to stay on his wheel. And that's all I focused on for the next 10 miles, longest 10 miles I've probably ever ridden in my life in terms of how they felt. And it was critical, though, because I was drafting him. We were going pretty quick. And that was the difference, I think. If I hadn't ridden with him, I'm sure I would have been out there another 30 minutes probably because I was just slogging. But he he dragged me all the way to the finish. Uh, props to him. And, man, it was just such a feeling to come down the, the finish straight and finish. I mean, I was pretty close to tears, honestly. Like, I really have never... I think felt that emotional at the finish of a, of a bike race. It's, it's just insane that just the, the level of fatigue that you feel and just uh, also the, the atmosphere and knowing that so many people have supported you throughout it all, whether it's, whether it's Kate, my wife, or whether it's Bobby or whether it's this guy, Andy, I just barely met or the random people who gave me their gels out on the, out on the road or the guy who gave me a lining kugel shandy, just like sort of, out of the blue was there with a cooler and I was like, yeah, I'll take some calories. I don't care if it's alcoholic, (laughs) all that stuff. You know, you think about all those people and you're like, this is such a, such a like big effort that is more than just you. And it's just really special. Have some friends. And so Spencer, you finished uh, just a hair under 13 hours, right? I did. 12 hours and 55, 57 minutes. Something like that. Something around then. Yeah. Eh, It's a long day to be on your bike. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to you. You know, thanks. We covered uh, this last week the the storyline around the, the what was going to go on at the front of the race and yeah. World Tour riders and whether they're going to race to win. And indeed, they were going to race to win. And we saw a really interesting and um, very competitive battle at the front of the men's race with um, a group of 10 riders with all of the pre-race favorites. Well, Nikhil wasn't there because he flatted early and, and no Finney. Um, come into the 100-mile mark, and that was the moment when Colin Strickland decided to go for this long-range attack. We're going to talk to Colin and hear about this attack a little bit later. But from a tactical standpoint, really interesting move because Colin tell, uh, told me that he was seeing the direction of the wind and basically betting that if he could get a gap in the headwind, really put an effort down and get a solo gap in the headwind, then once the course turned and everyone had to come in with a tailwind, he liked his chances there. I thought it was really interesting, a pretty, bit of, bit of a tactician going on in gravel racing. And then uh, the stage was set for this mano a mano slugfest between Colin, who was being chased by Pete Stetna. And I don't know about you, uh, Spencer, but like, this was just the perfect scenario at the front of the race in my mind, which was 
I wanted to see a gravel star go up against yeah. a world tour star. Yeah, you got exactly what and, you were hoping and for. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And like, not only was it that, but it was Colin Strickland, the guy who didn't start riding a bike until he was like out of college or racing a bike until he was out of college. And, and also the guy who's had so many mechanicals yeah. and flat tires and everything that have knocked him out of important races like Dirty Kanza or Belgian Waffle Ride, things like that. He's had some bad luck. Yeah, and he's going up against Pete Stetna, who's a guy who his trajectory to the world tour started when he was like in, he was like a child. Yeah. You know, he has been this amazingly talented and successful road bike and mountain bike racer over the years. And just these two guys from the opposite poles of the spectrum of American bike racing, uh, slugging it out and uh, talked to both of them. Strickland won. Stetna came in uh, seven or eight minutes down and he said, you know, chapeau to Strickland. Um, I don't know. I thought it was a really cool story. Yeah, it is a really cool story. And also just really remarkable how bold that move is. I was talking with Payson McKelvin after the race and he was in that group that Strickland attacked around that point. And uh, Payson told me that he, he thought he heard Ted King say something to the effect of, oh, we'll just let him dangle out there. We're not worried about it. And I think that probably some of them underestimated Colin Strickland. I, I think also Colin rode out of his skin and, and produced probably the best effort he's he's ever done in a race like this certainly Payson knows him very well because they're both Austin guys and he Payson was just stunned by how how Colin had had held off this group of them where it was you know it was it was Pete Stetna it was Lachlan Morton Alex Howes um, Pace McKelvin these guys were they were not messing around they were they were riding a pace line they were putting in the effort they were chasing as hard as they could and this this one solo rider was off the front Riding in those arrow bars. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the arrow bars. Yeah. We saw lots it, it, of... Good for him, man. Good for him. Good for good for uh, Colin. We're going to hear from him a little later. You know, a great battle in the women's race, too, with Amity Rockwell taking the win a year after she had, like, her DI2 shut down. Or not DI2. Her, her electronic shifting didn't work. She had flat tires and barely finished last year. At, uh, finished 18th last year. Really, you know, tough time. And then this year just crushed it. And, boy, we see this all the time in the women's race, which is frequent lead changes. And so I was uh, following it along, uh, along on social media and, and reading some of the race reports afterwards. And it sounds like just, you know, yeah, Olivia Dillon was out there, then it was flat tires. And some of these other gals would be out there and then flat tires, setbacks, whatever. And Amity Rockwell uh, rode a very consistent race, stayed out of trouble and took her first win. So kudos to Amity as well. I, especially before I let you get out of here, I mean, just talk about the 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 vibe, the emotion, the feeling afterwards. I think that's a really special element of this race too, is just how everyone kind of comes together when the, when the event is done. It's remarkable. I mean, personally, I was in t t totally wasted when I came across that line. I, I could, I had a hard time really soaking in the, the vibe cause I was, I couldn't even really take off my shoes. I was, uh, I was just like feeling like I could hardly drink or eat anything. I had like a violent case of the hiccups for like 20 minutes or so, which was awful. I, it was just about the last thing I needed at that point. Um, my ears felt weird. Like I felt like my ears needed to pop and hmm. everything sounded weird. Hmm. Like there was a lot of strange things going on. The body was maybe going into shutdown mode. So I, I really, next time I go, I hope I have enough energy left to get out to the finish line at night and see the people finishing in the dark because you know, that is really the heart and soul of a gravel race. When you see these people coming in with the lights on at midnight, you know, past midnight, I know a friend of mine from Chicago, his sister, she's relatively new to cycling. She tried dirty cans last year, didn't make the cutoff this year. She finished, I think she did like something like 26 hours Ooh. or so. And she just barely made the last cutoff by like less than a minute. And that is the heart and soul of gravel right there. You know, you see all these people popping off on Twitter about, world tour pros or aero bars or all these other stupid debates that's not what gravel's about gravel's about those people who are challenging themselves and finding their limits and they're the real heart and soul you know and that's what's so cool about it because you've got the top level competitors and you got people who just want to finish and you even see a little bit of that no matter where you are in the field because you do catch up to some of the 100 mile people along the way too and that's a big challenge to them too and I'll tell you what, some of those people at the back that I was passing the last 20 or 30 miles, I would never expect to see these people at any conventional bike event. I mean, by all, by all ordinary measures, some of them are just downright, you know, they're kind of obese, but 
good on them for being out there and doing it and riding and finishing. It's such a welcoming community that someone like that can come out and know they have a place at the event and they'll achieve it. They'll get through it and, you know, get that finisher's badge. Maybe they won't finish. Maybe they'll come back next year and make it happen, figure out the training, figure out the nutrition, whatever it is. That's what's so special about Dirty Kanza. And um, there's a lot of gravel races like that as well. But man, Dirty Kanza really is is the the ground zero, I think, for for everything that's amazing about the growing gravel scene in the U.S. Well, Spencer, kudos to you. It sounds like you had an amazing time out there. And uh, we're psyched that you were able to go out there and do it. And again, go check out Spencer's piece about his experience uh, at Dirty Kanza on VeloNews.com. Spencer, great job. Thanks for sending me. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Ah, well, that was Spencer Paulson. Love hearing from Spencer and his effort at the Dirty Kanza. Uh, but enough dirt talk. We're going to talk about a little Jared Italia. And right now, I got Mr. Andy Hood on the line. Andy, you're finally back in Spain after a long three weeks across Italy. I, I, have you have your clothes dried out yet? Are they still soggy? Like, where are you with your laundry game at the moment? Just digging through it right now, to tell the truth, Fred. I uh, got home late last night, uh, jumping into some uh, catching up with just life in general, digging through the suitcase. The big thing is, you know, it's a five uh, kg rule. You know, you come out of the out of the out of the Giro, nearly a month in Italy, eating pasta every night and just all that good food and wine. It's like the five kilo rule is the general standard for a Giro. I came out of it, man. I only got only got two kilos extra, so that's not too bad. That's not I'm too, too bad because I feel like after the tour, it's almost like you've uh, lost three kilos because, uh, you know, you either get a stomach bug from Buffalo Grill or you're at the place where they're serving, uh, what was that kidney salad we were at last year where it was like, <laughs> oh, this nasty stuff. Yeah, it's either 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 you're missing dinners because you rock up at ten o two and the guys ah oh, traders are the restaurant is closed at ten, <laughs> or yeah you're getting sick from the Buffalo Grill and uh, yeah you definitely lose weight and, and plus it's hotter you know it's just hotter you're stressed out of the tour, but in Italy the Giro a little bit lower you know it's kind of chaotic during the race during the day but you always kind of rock into the hotel and uh, the restaurants stay open later it's always time for a nice grappa to cap the evening off so. Well, man who's drinking a lot of grappa right now is Richard Carapath because he actually did it. He held on to win the Giro a week a week ago. Uh, Hoodie, you and I were on this podcast predicting that this final week of the Giro would produce fireworks and lots of action that may ultimately unseat Carapaz from the Maglia Rosa, and we were wrong. Mr. Carapaz held on to win the first Grand Tour for the diminutive country of Ecuador. Congratulations to all Ecuadorians out there. Uh, first of all, my question for you, Hoodie, is, I mean, when we look at Carapaz's victory, what are the salient moments during the race that we can really tie this win back to? Yeah, there's a couple of key points that Carapaz really came, came into, the, into the picture. He won that stage four. Uh, kind of an uphill kicker, one of those rare uphill kickers in this year's Giro. I mean, usually the Giro is littered with these little uphill finales in the hilltop towns. But uh, stage four to Frascanti was really the only stage that finished like that. And he jumped away from the GC guys and and uh, won that stage in front of our sprinters. And uh, that was kind of the first hint. I mean, he came out, come into this Giro kind of really under the radar. Uh, I talked to Max Chiandri, who was the uh, Movistar sport director, came across from BMC last year. And I think Max had quite a bit to do with some of the good tactics that Movistar was unveiling during this Giro. But he was saying that uh, no one was really looking at Movistar during this race and, and much to their loss because he was flipping through La Gazzetta every day. It was all Nibali. It was all Roglic. You know, the Italians getting hyped up on this big rivalry. And there's no mention of Movistar course inside the bunch. You know, the, the riders are going to be, and especially the sport directors, you know, they know who to watch. But, uh, it, you know, really, Carapaz came into this race not expecting to win. And I think, he, you know, a couple of key stages. Another big day was that time trial in San Marino. That's when inside the Movistar bus, they realized that it was Carapaz, not Mikel Landa, who had really the legs to win. Because on that day, he was fastest on that climb to San Marino where he kicked up at the end there. He was the fastest on that climb in the entire peloton. And then I think a really big day, everyone talks about stage 14 when he attacked and got the pink jersey. I think really the day before that was almost as important, if not more so, because that's the day when Nibali kind of lost his mind and uh, Roglic was kind of following his wheel everywhere and uh, Nibali lost his temper. And that's when he invited... Uh, 
Carapaz came over his house to check out his trophy case. And when those two were going off at each other, you know, Carapaz snuck away. We talked about this last week. He gained, uh, you know, 120 back on that stage to Lago Cerro. And between those two days, man, took it all back. And then after that, Movistar had the tactics and they had a pretty deep squad compared to what Rowich, you know, he was exposed every time the road went uphill. And Nibali, they just left it too late. I'm with you. I think they left it too late. Another stage I'd throw in there was the uh, a bridge stage where they took out the Gavia but had the Mortirolo because to me that was the day when if there was going to be a haymaker thrown at Carapaz, it was going to come that day from either Nibali or Roglic. And it was – you know, it's it's strange to say a stage that impacted the overall was a stage when not much ha- happened in the GC battle. But that was the day when we saw that Roglic just wasn't strong enough, just nowhere near strong enough. He had been exposed throughout the whole race. And on the Mortirolo, he, he couldn't keep up. And we saw Nibali try a few moves and, you know, put in some surges and look pretty strong. But just that was the moment that it was like, this is a climbing Giro. This is a year for the climbers. And Nibali's not the best climber. Carapaz is the best climber. And Carapaz and Landa were pretty they easily shut down Nibali. And um, from that moment on, it was like, boy, I don't think it's going to happen. Because knowing that that final time trial had a big hill in it, it was pretty short. And that it was, you know, if something was going to have to happen, it was going to have to happen on the climbs. And we saw Nibali try again on the penultimate stage. But... Hats off to Carapaz. He was the best climber at this year's Giro. That meant he won this year's Giro. Yeah, it was an impressive uh, display by by Carapaz as well. He, he's a pretty young guy, just turned 26 during the race. And throughout the, throughout the entire time, once he won the stage, once he took the pink jersey, you really saw him uh, as, as a leader of that team. He was always composed, never got nervous, never lost his nerve around the media or around all the hoopla, you know, every day going to the podium. There's a lot of protocol after the race. A lot of that kind of rattles a lot of riders because they like to kind of stick to their routines. They like to, you know, go right into their massage. And and uh, and, and that really kind of takes away from at least an hour. Sometimes sometimes at the Giro, these guys are coming to the press conferences almost two hours after the stage. So, you know, that really changes the rhythm for a rider. And you never saw Carapaz get really uh, lose his balance really inside the race or out. And once I kind of saw him being so confident in that race that you just had a sense of like, man, this guy is not going to crack. What's your sense of Landa? Um, Landa came into this race as the number one leader for Movistar with Carapaz as a number two. Uh, he rode as a, I would say, a good lieutenant. He was, uh, he took his turns on the front. He put in some attacks to try and soften up Roglic and Nibali. What do you think a Carapaz victory means for Landa? Yeah, I think in, in some ways it might be kind of a kick in the butt because it kind of shows, really displays it bare that that he really needs to up his game really in the time trials. I mean, we saw again, the time trial is his Achilles uh, heel in the sense of uh, he lost time, too much time in the opening prologue and at San Marino time trial. And I mean, even though he had a pretty good final time trial, he loses the podium by eight seconds. Remember he lost the podium two years ago to uh, Bardet by one second. So he's lost two pretty important podium spots in Grand Tours by a cumulative of nine seconds. That's got to pinch a little bit. And, um, you know, I think Landa, you know, we were talking to some people inside Movistar. It just seems like that uh, he kind of creates his own problems or he gets always on the back foot. He has to always kind of overcome these setbacks early in the Grand Tour, either be a crash or lost time at a time trial or just kind of being out of position sometimes. And you can see, obviously, is one of the strongest climbers in the peloton. But to win a Grand Tour, you know, you have to have a lot of moving parts come together. And something always just seems to be a little bit off the rails with Landa. And, uh, you know, he missed an opportunity at the, at the podium, but also really, I think, missed a chance to try to win this Giro. And what's he going to do going forward? He, he's already talking that he wants to be a leader with Nairo Quintana at the Tour de France in July. So that kind of already is going to create some tension going into that race. But there's rumors that Landa is going to Bajara Merida. We'll see if those if that plans out. But, uh, you know, he needs to really step up and really be in the running to win a Grand Tour to be taken seriously as a, as a legitimate Grand Tour candidate. You know, another rider we have some questions about after this race is Roglic, you know, the guy who came in as one of the big all-star favorites. And uh, we had a piece on the site where we were, we were debating, you know, what this means for Roglic and Jumbo Visma. And I, I had the pretty hard line take that this – that they should see this as a real missed opportunity. This is uh, a step backwards because, you know, Roglic 
had the success in the one-week races. He showed he could compete at the Tour last year, best time trialist, and just was... Uh, just didn't have the team to support him at this year's race. So, you know, Jumbo Visma was going to have Robert Hessing. Hessing crashed. Sepkus went in there. Uh, they were going to have Lawrence Duplus as another great climber for him. Duplus exited early. So uh, it was Roglic who was uh, just by himself on all these days. And, you know, on, on the set, you argued that, well, maybe this is more of a learning experience. And I was saying, no, this should be a setback. And I feel like I have come over to your way of thinking on this one in recent days and thinking about it, Hoodie, which is that... You know, yeah, Roglic is 29, and this is sort of the prime age when he should be winning these Grand Tours. But it just was really evident, especially on the Mortirolo day and some of those climbing stages on stage three, that physically he's just not there yet. And I don't know if having a stronger team around him actually gets him over the hump at this year's Giro d'Italia. He was unquestionably great in the time trials, but... The amount of time that he did lose and as defensive as he did seem on the big climbing stages in week three, I almost wonder if this is one of those grand tour experiences that he needs to build the physiology to be better in the future. Yeah, I think you have something uh, something there in terms of, uh, you know, he needs to grow his depth a little bit going in to be a legitimate Grand Tour contender. But you got to step back and just realize this is only his fourth Grand Tour he's even raced as a, as a professional. Remember, he used to be a ski jumper. So he came into the sport relatively late. And, uh, you know, this guy has got the motor. I think he has the motor to win a Grand Tour. Uh, in his four Grand Tour starts, he, he won stages in all four Grand Tours he's raced. Last year, fourth of the Tour. France just missed it on the podium when Froome came back and got him on the final day of time trial. And uh, this year, you know, I think he really dug deep. I think he deserves a lot of credit for really hanging in there and not completely cracking because that crash he had at Lake Como, uh, anytime you hit a guardrail going downhill on a bike, it's going to hurt. And he later revealed that indeed, you know, he hit his face, he smacked his ribs, he had some stomach problems. So he's, I think he's a little bit tougher than people kind of give him credit for. And I think actually if he had a much stronger team at this race, I think he actually probably could have still won the race. I mean, I think that mishap really on the whole, where they bungled the bike swap and uh, the team was out of position and he had to ride in on his teammate's bike. That was kind of an unfortunate thing. But if you look at the rest of the days, he really didn't lose that much time to his rivals. And I think if he had a stronger team, he could have controlled the race even more. And I think he probably could have actually won this race. But uh, the takeaway for me is Roglic is still on the up upward tra trajectory in his career and uh, i definitely think this guy can win a grand tour what's your take on uh carapaz himself um after the race was over i guess in the final few days there was some uh speculation and some stories going around that he has been linked to team ineos for 2020 that he was on a fairly entry-level contract with movistar I, the numbers i saw circulated were like a few hundred grand um, now he wins a Grand Tour. He obviously is uh, going to be a huge star in South America, but also the potential is there for future Grand Tour success. I mean, just seeing the way this Giro played out, do you see Carapaz as a future, as you know, capable of winning multiple Grand Tours? Or was he the opportunist who struck when the time was right and was able to grab his glory when, when the seas parted for him? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think perhaps a little bit of both. I think you could definitely see Carapaz winning a Vuelta, winning more Giros that have this kind of, uh, you know, even though this Giro had a lot of uh, a time trial kilometers in them, more so than even the Tour this year, they did all have some uphill sections in them. Of course, uh, the first stage in San Marino were all climbing time trials. Um, you know, do I see him winning a Tour de France uh, where they have some 35K plus rolling flat time trials against the big motors, uh, the Frooms and the Dumoulins. I, mean, I, I would say no to that. But he is the kind of rider that's explosive and can, can get away. You know, the, the, I think a guy like Froome and Dumoulin have that capacity to time trial, but stay close and even attack in the mountains. So can he win the tour? You know, I don't know. But going back to what you said about how much money he makes, um, that's one thing we've heard over the last several years, really, are these Colombian riders, a lot of these Colombian riders coming out. Um, why there's so many in the peloton is that the teams can get them pretty cheap, you know, relative to perhaps other uh, riders and get these guys pretty young, get them on these two, three-year contracts and not pay them a lot of money relative to perhaps what some of the other riders might be getting, but it's a lot of money to them. 
Now, uh, you can say maybe that's being exploitive, uh, exploiting them a little bit from their situation, but that is certainly something that I've heard over the years. And a lot of these kind of lower price contracts too come loaded with uh, bonuses. So, Carpaz will get a kick in there in his contract. Almost all contracts say if you win a grand tour, you're getting extra money. Uh, it depends on, on what he had negotiated. But the rumors are that he is going to Enios. Uh, like I said, I had that figure one point. Five million, but some of those numbers you got to take with a grain of salt because that is like a uh, uh, an agent out there trying to bump up his uh, bump up his uh, rider's price. Um, so some of this stuff there's a lot of kind of little game gamemanship going on there. Um, but the rumor we're hearing too is that is that Movistar wants to keep Carapaz because they believe he actually does have a, a very bright future. The rumor is that both Landa and Quintana are leaving Movistar and they're they're going to try to keep Carapaz and bring in Enrique Moss, who is kind of the young, hot Spanish GC talent. Yeah, I've been having my agent float some rumors out there about my uh, potential salary being yeah. lured away by Cycling Velo, which is uh, an up-and-coming <laughs> uh, competitor. Cyclingvelo.com. Uh, they are apparently wooing me around for uh, 1.5 million euro as well. God, it would be so nice if that could happen. You know, if we had agents and we could just like, I don't know, just like float it out there. Hey, hoodie. He's yeah, a, yeah. Uh, you know, Twitter.com cycling. Yeah, he gets paid uh, $5 of web story. I'll pay, I'll pay you seven. Wait, when did you get a raise? I didn't know you were on five dollars. Uh, well, a lot of good, interesting storylines to come out of this year's Giro. One of the great stories, boy, that final stage, the time trial in Verona, and it was won by American Chad Haga, his first Grand Tour win, first Grand Tour win by an American in quite some time. Uh, well, since since Ben King and last year's Welta. Oh yeah, what am I talking about? Not that long. Uh, first Giro win since TJ won a couple years won a couple years back. So, uh, congrats to Chad Haga. And now, Hoodie, you you spoke to Chad at the uh, throughout the race, but especially in the lead up to this race because you had the inside line here where Chad was saying, uh, "Kind of resting my legs to give give it a go at this last time trial." Yeah, it was funny. It was one of those days uh, in the in the middle after the Mortirella might have been the next day after. It was one of those days uh, the way the route was designed. We had to park in front of the race and leave before the race peloton because sometimes the way the road closures are, if you're in a valley, there's only one one way in and out of these race starts. So we had to leave before the race. And so I was just sitting in the car waiting for my colleague to show up. And then Chet Hager rose by and uh, said, hey, Chet, how you doing? How, how'd you go on Mortirolo? And he goes, oh, you know, I'm trying to save my legs. You know, I really have my eye on the uh, on the time trial. So we were just chatting there. And then I thought, that's a pretty good story. But I didn't. I didn't want to uh, just write the story up, just kind of based on some, you know, gossip. Where we were just chatting. You know, I didn't have my tape recorder out or anything. So then the next day at the start, I said, "Hey, Chad, can you just like repeat basically what you yeah. told me?" <laughs> and so, so yeah, that, that was his plan. I mean, after uh, Tom Dumoulin pulled out, they kind of changed everything for that team. They were going breakaways. They were trying to win a stage, trying to salvage something from the tour, from the Giro. And then uh, on that stage to San Marino, Chad had a great time trial. He was he was sixth. Right there with all the bangers. So he realized then, he goes, I've got great legs. He was looking at the profiles himself. He said, there's no way I'm going to beat the climbers in these big, hard mountain stages. Even if I do get into a great group, there'll always be a, a Thomas DeGent there or, or Chuchoni or one of these guys that can climb. So he said, my best bet is to save everything I've got for the for a final time trial. And man, it worked out great for him. He he started, but he started behind Campernance, who was the big favorite. So when uh, Chad beat him, he got a chance to sit in the hot seat for most of that afternoon inside the Verona uh, arena. And I had a chance to talk to him while he was in the hot seat. So let's listen to what Chad had to say Sunday afternoon, waiting to see if he was going to win. Uh, there was a funny thing on Cabinets. They asked him who the favorites were. He didn't, they didn't mention your name. Yeah, I, I kind of relish being the underdog. Uh, Did they give you motivation a little bit? Yeah, there was a little bit. Uh, as, I mean, as the suffering was really happening, I, I dug maybe a little deeper to prove to prove the doubters wrong. So you, you said already since Tom had to pull out with his injury, yeah. you already just changed the chip in your mind about this Giro. Yeah, uh, it's normally I, I was completely motivated to to finish on my knees here for Tom. Uh, but when he left and, and we were told to, to find opportunities where we can, I said, uh, the time trials, that's what I want. Uh, and so it's it's been a lot of riding around Italy waiting for them, but uh, here I am and uh, I, I think it was worth it. 
What was your preparation today, Chad, this morning? Have you been the course? Uh, I spent uh, an hour on Google's Street View this morning looking at the course just so that the recon I could already do pretty fast just to, to really test the corners a bit. And uh, I also took video of the course and then <laughs> in the two hours before I needed to get on the trainer, I think I watched I watched most of the course uh, several times. Yeah. Having Kaepernick's ahead of you was a play of help as well. Right? Yeah, to, to know as soon as I crossed the line uh, that I had beaten him was uh, was extra special. First time in the hot seat or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a long way. Uh, hey, good. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I had a really good time file on stage nine, but that was still a, a really long climb. Yeah, and I wondered, this would, it's still a long way to come, huh? But yeah. if, it, if this uh, works out like you want to be, yeah. it, it saves the Giro, maybe. It absolutely does. Yeah, I, we've... We still had a really strong ride and uh, a big fight from from Jan and Chris and Jai, but uh, and and they did a really good ride yesterday. But uh, we don't have a win yet. We could we yeah. see you crying up there. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. If, <laughs> if yeah. I win, I will I will be a mess. I mean, I I thought of my father throughout the race today. I mean, I've been in the team six years now, and they've constantly helped me to develop and given me opportunities. And and to win would show that uh, at the Giro, no less, would show that uh, it was all worth it. And uh, <laughs> to repay all the, the effort and sacrifice that everybody's made for me. Ah, great story hearing uh, Chad Haga take a stage win. You know, he's an American. He's been in the world tour for a long time, been doing these grand tours. And it's, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a big win in the world tour. But a guy like Chad raised the talent and the hard work and just knocking around for a while. I, it's great to see him get that result. Yeah, and then you know Chad, uh, you know quite a, an emotional story as well. His his father, who was very close to him, really helped him out. Most dads do, most parents do. When when someone's a, a junior racer, driving him to the races every weekend, he was quite close to his father, who who died a few years ago uh, with a long battle from cancer, and then he had that horrible crash, that training crash a couple of years ago with the entire Sunweb team. Seven or eight of those guys were injured, and and Chad still has a big scar down his neck, and and it said it took him a, a while to kind of get this nerve back in the peloton to be able to to jump into those holes and, and move around the Peloton and really be kind of lose that fury he'd kind of uh, acquired after that, after that crash. Well, Hoodie, I mean, you're, you're done with the Giro. Looking back on it, we got Carapaz as a winner. We have some exciting mountain stages, a couple of stages that were kind of duds. What's your overall, how, how, do you would, how would you rate this year's Giro? A glasses of Grappa. How many glasses of Grappa do you give to this year's Giro? <laughs> Yeah, the glass, the glass of grappa is, is the is the measuring stick for this one. Uh, initially, uh, I gave it two glasses of grappa, but I'm kind of I don't know I'm kind of having a change of heart. It wasn't that bad of a tour. I, I gave it kind of a three, two and a half, three glasses of grappa. It was interesting. Uh, I heard a little story the other day about why. This first half of this Giro was sort of kind of uh, boring, right? It had all these flat stages. There's, there weren't a lot of, wasn't a lot of pepper in the, in the course. A lot of times you'll see like a pretty good sized climb in that first week, or a lot of these hilltop finales. And I asked Vinny that the other day when I had a chance to talk to him, and he said uh, one of the reasons was that he wanted to have two mountaintop time trials in the first week, in uh, open it up in Bologna and then in San Marino. So he, what he didn't want to do, he said, was to have too much. GC in between uh, to kind of really just set the the overall classification too much. You have a guy like Roglic, you know, took a lot of time. And imagine if you had like a nice little punchy climb in there and his legs were still fresh, you know, he could have three or four or five minutes right in the first week. So that would really suck the air out of the race. But those time differences also set up the final week when when guys like Carapaz and Nibali were attacking. Um, the weather was another big factor. I mean, it rained every day. Everyone was kind of grumpy in the Giro. We're down there in the south after a long, cold, dark winter. Everyone wanted to put the shorts on and the t-shirts, and it rained. It was cold, and no one was too happy about that. And the stages were bloody long. There's nine stages of more than 200 kilometers this year, and a lot of them were just flat and boring. So... That kind of you know knocked down the value a little bit of uh, of why this Giro wasn't one of the great ones. Well, Hoodie, before we get out of here, I, I was able to catch up with Colin Strickland, winner of the Dirty Kanza, to hear the story of his epic ride and his big victory out there going against the World Tour pros. So I think we're just going to end today with Colin Strickland leading us out, and we will catch up a week from now to talk about all the racing action. So... 
For Andrew Hood, I'm Fred Dreyer. Thanks for tuning into the Vela News Podcast. Let's hear from Colin Strickland. Okay, right now I am very pleased to be joined once again by Colin Strickland. Uh, first of all, Colin, you were on this podcast a week ago, and we were talking about Dirty Kanza and your buildup, and I think it was offline I asked you, you know, like, so dude, like, what do you think your chances are? And you were, I don't know if you were joking or what, but you're like, yeah, I think I have as good a chance to win this race uh, as anyone, and here you are, you you have won the race. I mean, how are you feeling right now about this this whole past week? Oh, man, it's been an amazing week. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, it's, uh, it's great when you set out to accomplish something and, you know, work really hard for it for a given period of time. And, you know, and it, when it actually comes to fruition, it's one of those situations doesn't happen very often, to be honest. So this is beautiful week for me. So Colin, we're going to talk all about your win, what the last few days have been like, um, your body and how it feels right now after racing 200 miles. First of all, you there's some pretty impressive statistics to come out of this uh, victory. So you won Dirty Kanza. You were the first person to go under 10 hours. I think you averaged 20.2 miles an hour, which is insane given A, how hilly the course is, but B, the fact that you're on gravel with has a much higher rolling resistance than road. You're on a gravel bike. Um, so chapeau to you for, for winning this race. My first question for you, Colin, though, is just when you think back to the race itself and that day out there, what is the memory? What is the moment, the scene in your head that you think will always stay with you from that ride? I think that would be probably one of the stretches of road where it was just desolate and empty, just the emptiness. And it was a pretty lonely effort on the day. Not, not a lot of people out on the course, not a lot of, there's no follow car, uh, just being out there alone, going as hard as you could for most of the day. Uh, and that one of those, one of those instances of just cruising down big false flat, um, maybe with a giant riser in the distance that you're just approaching ominously. Uh, but yeah, just with just the emptiness of the Kansas landscape was pretty surreal. And it's, it's interesting how you're just thinking, what am I, it's an interesting thing to do with your life. Here I am out in the middle of these plains, no one around just, Pedaling this bike as fast as I can. Um, that was probably one of the take one of the things that stays with me. Moments like that, of, you know, the rest is kind of redundant. It's it's bike racing, but moments like that are are pretty memorable. Let's talk about your victory. So, Colin, you were part of this front group of ten or twelve riders rolling through the first hundred miles or so of this race, and then at about mile right around a mile, the midpoint of the race, you decided to put in a move. I, I was hoping you could tell the listeners the story why you decided to go at that moment. What was it about this moment when you felt like it was the right time to attack? Just set the scene and take us through why you went. The scene was we were just finishing the Little Egypt section of the course which was this really rugged up uh, ups and downs through a re- extremely rocky uh isolated area of the of the course and it just punishing climbs extremely rutted out rocky roads so we're all crawling up these hills uh, everyone is you know you're having to pick your line carefully and balance at eight miles an hour up these just brutal climbs and no one was really i think the sentiment that i felt was everyone was just like we have so much to race no one was really ready to race yet is kind of what I got from the group. That's what I kind of sensed. And, you know, being extremely impatient, I kind of tossed the, the playbook that was, you know, waited out and trust your physiology that you'll, you know, eventually come, come around. And yeah, I just rolled the dice then. That's how I've had most of my success in bike racing anyway. It's just, you know, just rolling the dice and call like laying your cards down and um, making everyone kind of, call a little earlier than they want to. And it puts them in a a situation that's out of their control. Whereas I feel like those guys would be very much in control in in another scenario. If I were to just stay with them the entire race, I turned it into a race against, you know, myself somewhere where I'm comfortable, you know, versus I don't, I, I was extremely, I didn't lack, I lacked a bit of confidence and it was just uncertain how I would perform against those guys. So I, I moved the race into a realm that I was familiar with. And so you put in this acceleration on one of the hills, look back, and no one is going with you. What's the mentality at a moment like that? What Take me through the thought process 
um, that where you know you either decide to give it more gas and open up that gap, or maybe you know wait for the guys to catch up. Take me through the thought process there. I think it was the second dig I put in. The first one, the first dig on a hill, hill I was reeled back in. You know, I, I didn't commit, of course, just because if those guys want to catch you, they'll catch you. That's that's really it. So you're playing a game of, of psychology. Uh, so it's really about kind of testing the waters. You, you know, you put in your initial dig and, you know, you mon- I look, you know, I look under my shoulder, try to be pretty subtle about it and uh, monitor the reaction. And really, that's that's what I played off of and just gave it a little more, little more gas and a little more gas as they, you know, just slightly, slightly accelerated. But we're not decisively like we're going to close them down. We're not you know, we're not OK with 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 Colin rolling away. Uh, that was not the sentiment. So eventually you know, the leash it extended to, you know, five or 10 seconds. And I was like, well, I'm going to put in a good few minutes and see what happens. Um, see how they react to that. And it was the same, same thing. So the gap blew up pretty, pretty quickly from there as they were, I think, I think they just wanted to see me. <laughs> I think they just wanted to watch me burn. <laughs> pretty, a pretty fair, pretty fair, uh, fair call on their, their part. Well, I think that's the beauty of this victory of yours is that you did force people to put the cards down earlier than they wanted to, and people didn't want to put the cards down. So that put the race in your hands. And, you know, we talked yesterday about this, but you had uh, another strategy up your sleeve, which was the wind. It sounds like you came in with some definite opinions about how the wind was going to shape the race, and your move to a certain degree played off of the wind directions. Take us through that. Absolutely. That was a huge, uh, a huge factor. I knew it would be a huge factor going into the race, just in this length of time, that much kinetic energy, positive or negative would play a huge factor in, in the, a race of this, of this length. And, uh, I didn't do a lot of course studying, but I knew the general layout and, you know, scrolling around my Wahoo computer during the race could <laughs> determine how many more sections of headwind and, how, um, and then how I would be eventually turn into a, uh, predominantly ripping tailwind for the for the second or for the last third of the race um so i could gauge my efforts in how to dig through the headwind to hold the gap and then i'd be able well more like extend the gap in the headwind and then i'd be able to recover and uh sustain in the tailwind uh, just based on the average you know experience riding alone out in the wind what i can average for extended periods of time they would have to average significantly more you know their speed would have to be so much higher to actually make up time on me that I was, uh, that's a comfortable situation for me. So, uh, yeah, get, knowing when the wind would shift and when, how much further I had to dig before I'd have some relief was, um, that was clutch intel and morale for a race like that. It's just, you have to have something to look forward to and tailwind's always nice as, as all cyclists know. I think that's a really important element of your victory, Colin, which is that I think a lot of casual viewers might look at the way you won Dirty Kanza and say, okay, this guy had the biggest sledgehammer and he just broke through the wall. But the fact that you were taking into account elements like the wind, the way that people were feeling in that group, I mean, to me, this seems like a victory that it was equal parts um, brain and brawn. But of course, of course, there's the brain, the brawn, and the emotion. So, you know, what was the low moment? You're out there by yourself. Your body has to be hurting at some point. Was there a low moment and how did you get through it? Low moment was roughly 20 miles to go, running out of water, and uh, both both quads hit get hit with pretty sharp cramps at the same time. Um, it's been about half the time in the past I've been able to work through them. Half the time, you know, I was in a breakaway at Joe Martin on the on the Devil's Den and dropped out of the lead group, even though I was feeling great. Just cramps absolutely devastated me and dropped back to the field. I think two guys won from the break in that case. So yeah, that was going through my mind of like. Uh, and then that a couple of moments later, literally seconds later, I hear a, I, something, you know, slapping around my rear tire and it was a large nail in the rear tire, uh, somehow picked up a nail on a gravel, gravel road and, uh, had to stop and remedy that too. So that, you know, that made me wonder what my cap was at the end of all that, all that, those tribulations. Um, yeah, again, not having any, not having any Intel, the entire, the entire, uh, breakaway escape I pulled was that was a little bit stressful just having nothing to base on just you got to go faster the entire time so that was stressful knowing I had to go faster and getting those you know potentially day-ending cramps 
And then, a, and then a puncture at the same time was pretty rough. So were you off the bike and changing a tire? Like, how did you overcome this puncture? What was it like? And what did you tell yourself it, to keep uh, yourself calm in that moment? Well, I had, I'd overcome one puncture earlier in the day, uh, similar in the, in the middle of the tread, uh, and it had sealed with a plug. Uh, and this one, luckily, I jumped off the bike. I always rotate the wheel such that the, the orange seal that we run uh, pools at the bottom so that, you know, rotate the puncture to the very bottom. So it gets plenty of sealant, you know, to spew out and, uh, plug the hole. And luckily it plugged really quickly and didn't need to pull out a CO2. So that was a really quick remedy. Pull it out, rotate the wheel, let the orange seal do its work and, uh, got on the road quickly again, uh, chugged all of my scratch mix that I had left in my bottles and, you know, prayed for a bottle down the road. And I eventually I found a, um, one more bottle, which saved my life. But, uh, yeah, that that it was pretty quick, quick flat change that time. Well, again, Colin, it was a very impressive win. Um, you know, so we got we like, we have to talk about the Aerobar debate because, uh, again, for the umpteenth year in a row, there was uh, <coughs> whinging online about whether or not uh, elite riders should be able to use Aerobars. And I watched the post race press conference they streamed live on Facebook, and I thought you had a fairly eloquent response when the Aerobar question was handed your way. So you know, you raced with Aerobars. Other riders chose not to. There were other riders who online were sort of chiding. Other you know, riders for potentially racing with them or thinking about racing with them. Uh, take me through your decision to race with them. And then also your just 30,000 foot perspective on the use of aero bars at this race. Hmm. I would, I would compare it to like, would you use a time trial bike in a time trial? Um, it, it makes you faster, <laughs> but it looks silly and it's kind of dangerous. Um, no, I, I, I was very careful not to, I was on the fence, actually. I brought them with me. My teammate brought his, too. We cut them nice and short, so they're, you know, kind of cute-looking, uh, not so in your face. And, um, yeah, we decided morning of, uh, I pretty much made the call to bolt them on. Um, and, you know, I flatted early in the race and had to chase for about 25 minutes, 20 minutes maybe, you know, flat out to get back into contention, into the group of 20 that was cruising, and, you know, they they – helped me get back into the race. And when, when, you know, we were either off the back of the race or off the front, they become your, a, a huge ally. And I don't know, it just, it, for, for, yeah, most people, the idea of holding arrow bars in anywhere near other people is an awful idea. You should not touch these things unless you're very much alone. <laughs> Even if you're leading a pace line, it's, it's, it's questionable idea because you're kind of putting your, handling you know potential handling mishaps uh, could negatively it could crash out someone behind you so uh i'm on the fence i don't think i'll run them again because you know i wanted to win the race and i did that so i would leave it up to the organizer and just like compared to a time trial in a uci race um what equipment is is like what's the what's the what are the rules and are you following the rules or are you cheating um and if until they change the rules it's it would be almost silly not to use them given that they're such a helpful um, tool in these circumstances of chasing or, or escaping. Yeah, and that's the answer you gave at the uh, at the at the press conference, which I thought which I thought was, summed it up quite well. Which was okay. There's the aesthetic element of it, but then there's also the wanting to win, and it does give you a definite advantage. And if you are mindful and use them appropriately, and okay, maybe they're not the best thing for Joe Midpack, who's going to be in a peloton of forty riders in his aero bars. But if you're out there by yourself or trying to catch back on, and they offer you an advantage, why wouldn't you use them? I would prefer that they are, they are um, banned from gravel racing. I would much prefer that, but it has to be, it has to be a level. The playing field has to be level. I would not want to be chased by Peter Stetna in aero bars without them, to be honest. Like, would you, would any of the people commenting on Twitter like to be chased by Peter Stetna in aero bars without aero bars? Do tell. I'd love to know. <laughs> uh, I like Let's it. see how that goes for you. So we're talking to you uh, about a day and a half after your victory. And before I let you go, I mean, talk to me about how is your body feeling? What's sore and what is surprisingly feeling okay? The joints are joints and ligaments that don't usually get inflamed from a bike ride are a few of them are sore ankles and uh, no knees, luckily, um, mostly ankles. Um, on, I am I am very impressed with how personally how I held up, how my body held up. I thought it would be so much worse never having pushed. I think my longest ride was three hours shorter than this, maybe four. 
So this is definitely pushing into uncharted territory, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very content with the way um, must have some Tara Humaran in me from Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, but yeah, the body responded really well to this kind of an output. Well, Colin, again, congrats on the big win. I mean, you know, you were on the podcast and then you won. I think that there's, uh, you know, listeners out there, um, just note, I mean, if you have a 200-mile race coming up and you really want to win it, just uh, just give me a Get rating. on the podcast. Seems Get like on. The, <laughs> seems like the Velo News podcast is really the secret to victory. Uh, no, but chapeau to you, Colin. I mean, I couldn't think of a, uh, a, a gravel, fixed-gear road specialist who I would have much rather seen win than uh, than you. Oh, I thank you, Fred. Best of luck with the recovery, and let's catch up soon. I, I want to know what is your next big challenge, and um, you know what the life of a dirty Kanza men's winner is like uh, midway through the year. If you're going to be just showered with adulation wherever you go, you know you're, you're checking in, you're checking out in the local Whole Foods, and like little ladies huh. are coming up to you and asking for autographs and stuff. Tulsa Tough. I've never won a stage of Tulsa Tough, and I've been going for six years, and it's about damn time. Here to hear, folks. Watch out, Tulsa Tough competitors, because Colin Strickland is coming for your wins.